as we're in our final message here, um, I, just, I just, by way of introduction, I just want to uh, do a brief overview and, uh, of, of what we've gone through in the whole letter and just briefly uh, skim over um, the, the past messages we've gone through. And just, you know, as I said um, in the first uh, message, uh, way back in August, when we opened up this letter of, of Paul to Colossians, I, I said that uh, studying, understanding, and applying the book of Colossians is profitable for our growth in faith, sanctification, healthy Christian relationships, and understanding of the gospel and the mission, purpose, and function of the church. That's, that's why we, we studied it. Uh, and, and many of those, uh, those benefits can be found in, in most uh, New Testament epistles and most of God's word. But just in, in, in overviewing the letter of Paul to the church at Colossae, I, I saw that there were seven reasons why we should study it. First, because it's scripture, and we, we study scripture, we, we lean upon the word of God. It is our, our sole authority here. That's why um, the name of this church is Berean Baptist Church, because we uh, are careful to uh, study the scriptures daily, to um, examine them. And uh, also because this letter is written to believers under assault under assault in their faith and, and by heresies, uh, just as, as we are today in, in our, our current cultural climate and um, our society, and like, like most of the church has been throughout the ages. And also because uh, this letter proclaims the excellencies of the gospel, which we can see in, in the first chapter of uh, Colossians. Fourth, because it exalts the glories of Jesus Christ uh, throughout uh, the first half. Uh, in fact, all, all the way um, through the middle of chapter 3. Um, also, because it details the scope and nature of ministry. As Paul um, explains his philosophy of ministry, why he does the things he does at, at the end of chapter 1 and even into chapter 2. Um, also, six, we, we um, study this, this letter because it guides us in the process of sanctification, of, of being made holy, of being conformed to the image of Christ. And we see that at the uh, end of chapter 2 and all throughout chapter 3. Also, because it provides instructions for Christian relationships, how we are to relate to one another, wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, uh, uh, Slaves and masters or employee and employer. You see that at the end of chapter 3. And in beginning uh, this letter, in the introductory uh, message, I entitled that By the Will of God in Colossians 1 and verses 1 to 2. And we, we see that as Apostle Paul opens up this letter, he, he prefaces it that uh, he is an apostle by the will of God. And we see that it is through the will of God that, that Paul became who he was. And the same with Timothy and even the church at Colossae was founded because of the will of God. We see in verses 3 to 8 of chapter 1, the message I entitled, The Gospel of Brotherly 
thanks. This, there, there's this, this uh, thanksgiving and prayer, um, not only from the Apostle Paul, but um, from his uh, associates in Rome, his fellow workers, and, and even in uh, Epaphras, who um, planted the church and, and had gone to Rome uh, to talk to uh, the Apostle Paul because of the things that were happening in the church. We see in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 1, uh, the, uh, the prayers of Paul and of his associates uh, and, and all their, um, their thankfulness. Uh, a message that I entitled, Prayers Unceasing for Faithfulness Increasing. And then uh, throughout the, the rest of uh, uh, chapter 1 and, and verses uh, well, actually, particularly verses 15 to 23, which you probably have the heading in um, your Bible, something along the lines of the preeminence of Christ or, the, um, or Jesus Christ and who he is, the glories of Jesus Christ. And we went through a five-part series in, in that section of called The Glorious Christ. Part one, the Redeemer King. In verses 13 to 14, we see the redemption of Jesus Christ and, and what he had done for the, oh, those of us who are in Christ, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. We have redemption through our Redeemer King. And then in Colossians 1.15, we see uh, Jesus as the God-man. The glorious Christ part two, the God-man, that he is both 100% God and 100% man. And we saw in verses 16 to 17, uh, a message I entitled, uh, uh, The Creator and Sustainer of All. Glorious Christ part three, the creator and sustainer of all, that, that Jesus is not just fully God and fully man, but he is our creator. He is our sustainer. He has all the attributes of, of God. And he exercises all of those attributes, all of those functions. We saw in Colossians 1, 18 to 20, a message I entitled, Glorious Christ Part 4, the head of the church, that Jesus is the head of the church. There's only one head. Of the body. There's not multiple heads. That would be a, a monster. There is one head and one head only. And, and, and any pastor, missionary, uh, ministry leader is just an under shepherd, a servant. Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. And we saw in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1 um, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. It all started with him. He, he gave us faith. He, he brought us into the faith. He perfects our faith. And then as we get towards, got towards the end of chapter 1, we see Paul's ministry to the church and, and, and his response to the glorious Christ. That was a message I entitled, Paul's Response to the Glorious Christ. And then later, in, uh, e even in the, uh, the beginning of chapter 2, as, as Paul um, explains why he does what he does... At the end of chapter 1 in his philosophy of ministry, he goes in the, the beginning of chapter 2 and explains um, his particular ministry uh, to the Colossians um, through his letter, through his prayers, and, and why he had written his letter to them, his concern for them, his ministry to the Colossians. 
And then as we get into, uh, we, we gotten into uh, chapter 2 and towards the end of chapter 2, we see um, all these, uh, these principles, these instructions concerning how we are to walk. How we are to walk. That as we receive Christ Jesus the Lord, we are to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith in verses 6 to 7. And then uh, Paul warns the Colossians and warns us not to be deceived in verses 8 to 10 by empty philosophy and, and worldly deceit, human tradition. We're not to be deceived by those things. And then in verses 11 to 12, we saw these symbols of separation and salvation and circumcision and baptism. These symbols that were um, instituted uh, for uh, Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. That, that distinguish us from the world, that separate us from the world. That we are separated unto Christ because of Christ. Verses 13 to 15 in chapter 2, we, we saw that we have victory in Jesus because he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him because of what he had done at the cross, his sacrifice for our sins. All throughout the rest of chapter 2, we see the danger of Human religion, we see that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We, we, we then go into chapter 3 and, and we're, we're told to not to dwell on things below, but to dwell on things that are above, to seek those things are, that are above, not to look down, not to look at the things of this world, but to dwell on Christ. We saw God's program for change in Colossians 3 and verses 5 to 8, that we are to put to death what is earthly in us, all those earthly, uh, immoral sins of uh, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, all the sins of the, the heart and the mind and the mouth. We saw that uh, integrity begets integrity verses 9 to 11 of chapter 3, that we are not to lie. We are to be honest, transparent, uh, people of truth. We are to put away all deceitfulness and manipulation and those bold lies that we used to walk in. And then we are to put on Christ in verses 12 to 15 of chapter 3. This, this concept of put off and put on that we also see in Ephesians chapter 4, this concept of sanctification, that we are to put off the old man and put on the new man that's, that's created in Christ Jesus. And then um, as we do that, we are to proclaim Christ because we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in verses 16 and 17 so that whatever we do in word or deed, we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And as we do these things, as we live and walk and, and proclaim Christ, as we walk in a Christ-like manner, then that should um, evidence it itself in our uh, relationships, wives to husbands and husbands to wives and children to parents and, and fathers to children and then even employees to employers and employers to employees that all of our lives are to display the, the work of Christ. 
And finally, we are to glorify Christ in our prayers and our proclamation. Chapter 4, as, as Paul rounds out his final instructions to the Colossians and, and to us, we are to live in such a way that, that Christ is everything. We, we speak to him often. We, we bring others before him in intercessory prayer and, and we proclaim him. We proclaim him to the world, to a, a, a lost and dying world. We proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ alone. We are to glorify Christ in our prayers and in our witness. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw these um, servants, these faithful fellows bringing refreshing reports, Tychicus and Onesimus, and, and their background. And, and now we get to these last eight verses, and we see this list of, of, of people, of ministers, of churches, this list of uh, uh, greetings and, and farewells, a, a list that um, we see many, many similar lists in, in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and, and many of his other letters. Uh, and sometimes we, we have the tendency to just gloss over, just to finish our Bible reading, just to finish the chapter, uh, finish the book. We can check the box. We're done with it. And uh, too often we just gloss over it. And we don't, we don't gain all the principles and the instructions that are inherent in this list of, of greetings and farewells. That these are people. These are ministers. These are fellow servants who labored with Paul. And um, even if Paul did not um, see them face to face, they... He, he knew them, he wrote to them, he spoke of them. These are fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And, and not only does Paul want to mention them and commend them and, and um, edify them to the Colossian church, but I, I, I believe that there are four things in these last eight verses which Paul wants to communicate to the Colossians. As he lists these these people out, these men out. I, I think there's four things that Paul wants to communicate them, to them. First is that he is not alone. Paul's not alone here. He's, he's not alone in prison. He's, he, he's not alone by himself. He's not alone in ministry. Too often we can um, succumb to this temptation that we're all alone. Or, or no one really understands my struggle. No one struggles like I do. And there is a kernel of truth in that because we are all unique. And so even if we have the same exact trials, our, our trials are, are slightly different to us because we are different people. But it's a lie that we're alone. We're, we're not alone. We're never alone. Because God is always with us. And, and Paul wants to communicate this to the Colossians, that he is not alone. He, he is not alone because first, he has a fellow prisoner with him. Aristarchus, he, he begins with verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Just in, in that, that short phrase, it, it, it says a lot. And, and there, there isn't much about Aristarchus in the New Testament, but just the fact that 
Paul mentions him as his fellow prisoner that he greets the Colossians, it, it says something. William Barclay, in his commentary, he writes this concerning Aristarchus. He says this, he was a Macedonian from Thessalonica, which we see in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. And he goes on, he says, we get only fleeting glimpses of Aristarchus. But from these glimpses, one thing emerges. He was clearly a good man to have around in a tight corner. He was there when the people of Ephesus rioted in the temple of Diana and was so much in the forefront that he was captured by the mob, Acts 19.29. He was there when Paul set sail for Rome as a prisoner in Acts 27.2. It may well be that he had actually enrolled himself as Paul's slave in order that he might be allowed to make the last journey with him. Talking about coming from Caesarea in, uh, in, on the coast of Israel all the way to Rome. And now he is here in Rome, Paul's fellow prisoner. Clearly, Aristarchus was a man who was always on hand when things were at their grimmest. Whenever Paul was in trouble, Aristarchus was there. The glimpses we have are enough to indicate a really good companion. He was there all the way with Paul. All the way. He's, he's stuck closer than a brother. He was his fellow prisoner. It, it, it makes me think of um, those times, some of you may remember those times of when you're a kid getting in trouble. You get in trouble as a kid and I uh, always found comfort in the fact that there would be another kid with you. <laughs> like, like, you. You weren't the only one getting called to the principal's office. Or you, you might get called or the teacher might call your name and you go to the principal's office and then you go there and you're like, whew. There's eight other boys here with me. <laughs> or, you know, mom or dad, you know, singles you out and then you find out, the, you know, the bro your brother or your sister was doing the same thing. And, and it kind of, even though you got the punishment you deserve, it kind of lessened it a little bit because there was someone with you to share in your misery. And I think not only Paul finds that comfort, but in Aristarchus, but there's history here. It wasn't that just he just ended up in a Roman prison um, with another person there that just so happened to be a Christian, but this was his fellow companion, his buddy, his fellow prisoner. And they, they leaned on one another. And just this, this short phrase says a lot, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. It, it, it reminds you of you know, the importance of the buddy system. You know, in the military, we have what we call the battle buddies. Um, and a buddy system, you see it in, in uh, companies, in sports, in uh, uh, social clubs, in Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Um, and it goes all the way back to, um, even to Jesus, sent out his disciples two by two. Paul's not alone because he has a fellow prisoner with him. And second, he's not alone because he has faithful workers with him. Faithful workers with him. He goes on to say, not only is Aristarchus my fellow prisoner with me and greet you. He goes on and says, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And then, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These, these three men that are with him, fellow workers for the kingdom of God. 
faithful workers. And just as he mentions Mark, I mean, we, we can remember um, the past in, in Acts and, and Mark's defection, how he defected um, from the work on, on uh, one, of, one of Paul's mission trips. He defected, he separated from him. But church history tells us that um, it's really Peter took Mark under his wing, and, and Mark ended up writing a gospel, and, and almost all of those um, accounts of the gospel um, he received from Peter. Peter discipled him, and, and, and it's really fitting that we see Mark's restoration here, given the fact that Peter discipled him. We look back at Peter's defection, that Peter defected, had a momentary lapse of faithfulness, and sinned greatly against the Lord, and yet the Lord restored him at the end of, of the Gospel of John. And, and so we see that failure is not final. And we're all on this, uh, this path, this journey, this spectrum of growing in Christ's likeness and faithfulness. And, and Mark is listed here as, as one of uh, Paul's faithful companions, a faithful worker that is with him. And then Jesus, who is called Justice. You know, the, the term Jesus, um, we, we rightfully think of Jesus Christ, but um, just as we have common names in our society and, and even in Christianity, we name a lot of our kids after um, people in the Bible, and, and that happened all throughout Jewish history, and, and Jesus is really the Greek form of Joshua. And uh, there's a lot of people named Jesus because of Joshua in the Old Testament uh, figure of Joshua. And so we have this, this man named Jesus, but then they say he's called Justice. And, and probably, um, for two reasons, probably because um, they, they, they wanted to uh, distinguish between our Lord and, and maybe even Jesus, who is called Justice, didn't want to be called Jesus as his Lord, even though he was, he was given that birth name. But Justice... Um, links back to um, his righteous character, his just character. He was a man of character that was with Paul. He was a faithful worker. He was a faithful worker with Paul. Paul's not alone because he has a fellow prisoner with him. He has faithful workers with him. And, And third and finally, he has fellow countrymen with him. He has fellow countrymen with him because he goes on to, and he says about these three men that these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God and they have been a comfort to me. You know, Paul was on house arrest in, in, in Rome. Um, he had a pretty comfortable living um, in, in that first imprisonment. He had people that were able to come and go, people from the church, people able to support him. And so there's many other workers that would come and go. But he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. These are, as he says, of the circumcision, meaning these are the only Jews here. My fellow countrymen, Aristarchus and Mark and Justice. There's some comfort in that. There's, a, there's another level of comfort. I mean, you think of you know, times in our lives where you know, many of us have been in situations where you're far away from home, either um, for college or for a job or military service. Or, and it's always comforting to meet someone 
who's from the same state or the same county or the same town, especially the same town, someone who grew up um, where you grew up. And we, we get this saying when we meet those people, wow, it's a small world. It's a small world. I met this person. They went to the same high school I went to. They, they, they know the same streets, uh, you know, they, even some of the same people. And, and sometimes the, the church is like that. We can go to, it's, it's always interesting um, to go to, we can go to another church in another state and uh, meet someone and be like, oh, yeah, you go to what church? Oh, yeah, do you know so-and-so? And, and it really is a small world, but just the fact that you're with somebody that comes from where you come from, that grew up where you grew up, that understands that little um, subculture in your town, your city, or, or even more so is the same ethnicity, the same background, um, speaks the same language, the same uh, religious background, all the same demographics. And, and uh, certainly the Jews... Um, like many other religions, but particularly the Jews, had this strong cultural, religious, uh, national identity. And for Paul to have a few other men of the circumcision, few other Jews, a few other countrymen with him, helped him, helped him greatly, was a great encouragement. He is not alone. He's not alone in prison. Even though he's in a Roman prison, he is not alone. One commentator writes that he felt keenly his alienation from his countrymen, as he writes in Romans chapter 9 and Philippians chapter 1, um, because of his conversion, because of Christ. But he goes on, he says, but these three, he adds, have proved a comfort to me. And just the, the verb form proved, um, it shows almost like a, a, a completed action. He says um, it, it may point to a particular crisis when they stood by Paul. Certainly Aristarchus, we can read, stood by Paul in, in several crises and was with him all the way. And, and even Mark has some history, justice. But these are men that are with Paul. They're fellow, fellow prisoner, faithful workers, and fellow countrymen. Paul's not alone. He's not alone. Second, I, I believe that Paul, um, in listing all these characters and their exploits, wants to show the Colossians that you are not alone. That, that you, Colossians, are not alone. You're, you're not alone in this fight of faith. You're not alone in the kingdom of God. You're not the only church here. And, and you're not alone, first and foremost, because you have a hometown hero fighting for you. You have a hometown hero. And I remember, you know, just um, recently in, in our nation's, uh, the war on terror and our, our recent um, uh, actions in Afghanistan and in Iraq, um, you know, many, many people and myself joined the military and we went, um, not, not so much, um, you know, to, to fight the war, um, some of us did, some of us uh, to serve our country, but nonetheless, we were involved in those conflicts. And um, there is this concept of hometown heroes. But it was more so for those that were in, in the reserves or in the National Guard that um, 
our, our nation deployed them. And there was a sense that many small towns would have those banners around their towns. And this is our hometown hero. And, and churches and communities and, and uh, workplaces would have you know, a person that would be deployed that would be in Afghanistan or Iraq. And there was this connection to this, this hometown hero, this service member who is far away um, serving our country. Whatever you thought about the conflicts, this was one of us that was, was in another country serving our country. He is a hometown hero. And this is, in a sense, who Epaphras is. Epaphras um, was the one who planted the church and, and, and even looks like he, he probably was the one who planted the church in Laodicea and Herapolis. He was probably a businessman, a local businessman that, that heard the gospel in Ephesus. Many, many theologians, many pastors assume that he had heard the gospel in Ephesus and, and then took it inland farther to Colossae and Herapolis and Laodicea. And, and now he's in Rome with Paul. He took this lengthy journey to um, meet the apostle, to get um, a little bit of discipleship, a little bit of advice, some instruction, um, some resources, to, in, in a sense, um, go uh, call in the cavalry to help out at Colossae, to help out these struggles. And, and Paul mentions him in verses 12 to 13. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis, nearby cities. Epaphras, the, the hometown hero, he, he's here with me. He struggles for you. He fights for you. You're not alone. I like what John Calvin writes in his commentary about Epaphras. He writes this. He says, he's always striving. Here we have an example of a good pastor whom distance of place cannot induce to forget the church so as to prevent him from taking the care of it with him beyond the sea. We must notice also the strength of entreaty that is expressed in the word striving. For although the apostle had it in view here to express intensity of affection, he at the same time admonishes the Colossians not to look upon the prayers of their pastor as useless, but on the contrary to reckon that they would afford them no small assistance. That their pastor is praying for them, struggling for them. It's always comforting to know that someone is praying for you, but especially your pastor, and that, that's... You know, uh, part of my job description <laughs> is to pray for you. And I, 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 I'm called to spend a bulk of my time in prayer for, for you all, for the people of God, for this church. And, um, you know, the, the role of the pastor, the biggest two things he is to do is the ministry of the word and prayer. To study the word, to preach the word, to counsel through the word and to pray for you all, this is what Paphras is doing. And, and, and Calvin comments that um, Paul, in a sense, admonishes the Colossians that um, this is no small matter. That they would afford, his prayers would afford them no small assistance. And just in that comment by Calvin, it, it reminds me, probably one of the first verses I, I learned, even before I was a believer, was um, James 5.16. 
And, and I, I learned it in the King James Version. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Availeth much. It's something to have a righteous man pray for you. And Epaphras was struggling on their behalf. And so they're not alone because they have a hometown hero fighting for them. They're also not alone because they have, you have sister churches on your side. There are sister churches on their side. Laodicea and Herapolis, nearby cities. Uh, Paul goes on in his greetings. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, is uh, also um, uh, fellow workers with him. But then he goes on, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. It is probably a wealthy uh, woman who had a large house uh, that was um, uh, fitting for, for gathering. And he goes on, he says, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. As I commented before, the New Testament church read each other's mail. And they, especially when it came from an apostle. And they read these letters and they worked amongst each other. They communicated with uh, each other. And it wasn't just um, these sister churches in Laodicea and Herapolis, but um, Ephesus wasn't that far away. Uh, Epaphras made it all the way to Rome and, and, and probably uh, most likely on his way to Rome, he went through Corinth, which is on that, just geographically, it's on that isthmus between uh, uh, in, in the middle of a, uh, uh, the mainland of Greece and another peninsula, Achaia. And, and he probably took that route, probably went through a couple churches on his way to Rome. But not just those churches that Epaphras went through and that the, the Colossians had some communication with, but all the Macedonian churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, all these churches in the region, they're not alone. There's, they have sister churches on their side. But third, Paul communicates to them that, that you are not alone because you're in a network of ministers, missionaries, and churches. We, we see Epaphras, we see Nympha here. Uh, verse 17, and say to Archippus, um, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received. And the Lord is probably a young man or could be an older man that was being raised up for ministry. He probably had recently accepted a call or been set aside uh, for a call to ministry within their own church. There's this network of, of ministers, of missionaries that, that Paul is listing here. And, and, and we can also imply that there's others with him and others throughout all the churches. We, we also, by way of implication, can see that there's uh, the rest of the apostles in other lands and their disciples. Peter would eventually go to Rome. He may have been at Rome at this time. Um, but... There's apostles all over, disciples all over. There's also uh, churches in other regions, uh, Cyprus, uh, Cilicia, and Galatia, which is uh, uh, also uh, modern-day Turkey and, and Asia, Macedonia, Greek. Uh, they're in a network of missionaries, ministers, and churches. They're not alone. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, there, there's several verses in Paul. Um, especially uh, alludes to this concept of, 
of the church as a body, the body of Christ, and, and we are merely members of. And he, he, he says this. He says this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Is he, he's explaining to them that they all have spiritual gifts, and they're, they're not to um, boast about their spiritual gift or, or compare themselves to one another in terms of spiritual giftings and ranking, but they have all been given a gift for the benefit of the body and they are to use those gifts for the benefit of the body. And he says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. But of many. They, they are many members in one body. Many members in one body, united by the Spirit and united by the blood of Christ. So they are not alone. So Paul communicates first to the Colossians that he is not alone. Second, that you, Colossians, are not alone. And third, that they are not alone. They talking about all of these uh, fellow workers, these faithful workers, fellow prisoners, missionaries, ministers, uh, disciples that are all over the Greco-Roman world that are in other churches, those uh, in the church of Laodicea and in Herapolis, they're, they're not alone. And primarily, he, he, he's probably alluding to Epaphras as their hearts and minds are, are concerned about Epaphras as Epaphras has left them and gone to Rome. And certainly this is the, the first news that they receive back concerning Epaphras and how he's doing. So most likely, they're, they're concerned about Epaphras. And Paul communicates to them that, that all of these Ministers are not alone, and especially Epaphras is not alone. Epaphras has other friends and supporters. You know, sometimes we, um, we can put our friends in a box, so to speak, that, um, you know, we have our friends, and, and that's our friend, and we categorize them, that's, that's my friend. But then sometimes we um, are confronted in the fact that our friend has other friends. And sometimes... <laughs> Our friends have other friends who are better friends than we are to them. <laughs> and so, you know, Epaphras is a big boy. He's a big boy. You don't, don't, don't worry about Epaphras. He's being taken care of. He has, he has other uh, supporters. He does care for you. He's struggling on your behalf. But he has other friends and supporters he went all this way. He's a big boy. He went all this way to Rome on his own. Um, he accepted the call to, to, to ministry. He planted this church. He, he probably helped plant the church at Laodicea and Herapolis. He was probably going back and forth. This was a mature Christian man. And yes, they were concerned about him, but you know he's not alone. He's not alone in this. He's not alone because, you know, he has other friends and supporters in Rome, um, primarily the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter and, and has, has helped um, Epaphras with, uh, with advice, ministry advice and, and, and support and, and probably um, introduced Epaphras to many other uh, disciples uh, in, in Rome and in other churches. 
uh, Epaphras, he probably has other friends and supporters in Ephesus, which he, he, he went through, he must have gone through Ephesus to go on his way to Rome, and, and he's most likely has good friends in Ephesus, in that church there, and potentially in Corinth. He definitely has friends and supporters in Laodicea and Herapolis, and, and potentially throughout the whole Greco-Roman world. Epaphras is not alone. The churches are not alone. They, they communicate with one another. As we can see implied here that uh, Paul tells uh, the Colossians, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Uh, there's some communication here between the churches. They're working with one another. They, they are not alone. All these workers, all these churches, all these ministers, they're, they're not alone. And uh, many uh, commentators have, have um, supposed that this letter from Laodicea may have been um, the letter that Paul um, wrote to the Ephesians uh, because the early manuscripts of the letter to the Ephesians doesn't have that title. And many uh, suppose that letter to be a circular letter. As Paul alludes here, that all of his letters were essentially circular letters. They weren't to stay at one church. They were to be read at that church. They were to be copied, and they were to be sent along, as with the other churches in their letters, so that the word of God would spread. And so it's quite possible that um, the letter to Ephesians went there and, and was copied and went to Laodicea. It might have originally been intended for Laodicea. It was sent with uh, Tychicus and an Onesimus. They're reading each other's mail. They're communicating with one another. There was also trade that went back and forth between all these churches. There was this network of churches and communication and the disciples, the ministers, they were not alone. They were not alone. And they're not alone because they have other friends and supporters at Paphras. The churches communicate with one another. And third, God is raising up men for ministry. We see this um, implied in, in not only Epaphras and all the things that he's been doing. Uh, Mark and his restoration, his usefulness to ministry. Uh, Archippus and that his, uh, Paul tells them to encourage him to encourage him in his ministry, that, that he would fulfill the ministry that he has received in the Lord. Probably a recently uh, set-apart uh, pastor, missionary, uh, recently laid hands on. Mark, you know, he, we see this indication as, as Paul lists Mark, that, that Mark has been sanctified, he's been discipled, he's been restored to useful ministry. Uh, Epaphras has been raised up by God from among you. He struggles for you. He, he, he's a faithful minister. Archippus is being raised up and, and Archippus needs your encouragement and your support. You know, there's... This, this concept that we, we see often in the military, sometimes we see it in um, corporate America as there, there's, there's corporate competition, but we, we also see it in the church and, and definitely um, in the New Testament of um, trying to take down an organization, or organization by taking down its head, by taking down its leader. 
by, and certainly Satan has um, planned this and persecution planned this and, and the, the Roman Empire and the Jews um, used this tactic of taking down the leader. Uh, it began with Herod, uh, you know, executing James and then imprisoning Peter and about to do the same to Peter. The, the Jews trying to capture Paul and, and which, by, by which way he found himself in Rome which is exactly where, where God wanted to lead him to. And yet, the church doesn't hinge on one man, besides Jesus Christ, of course, but uh, not on one sinner, not on one pastor. We're decentralized in a sense. And God is raising up men for ministry. I remember, you know, uh, this illustration um, when I was uh, uh, doing battlefield tours uh, when I was in Okinawa as a Marine. And I, I would, uh, during my time off, I'd do these battlefield tours. And uh, one of the museum curators would tell us, uh, told us stories about um, World War II and how, um, you know, like in many wars, um, you'd have snipers who would uh, try to kill the officers and the leaders of the opposing army and just to, to try to take down a, a, head, uh, a head leader that would um, just kind of debilitate the, the opposing army. Um, but, and we would do that, and we certainly did that. But um, see, the, the Japanese snipers, they had a problem. They ran into a problem with the American army, and uh, they, they would try to shoot our officers, and, and they, they would, but then they'd realize that another man would just come up and take his place and leave, because we had somewhat, we had a non-commissioned officer corps of subordinate leaders, this whole hierarchy of subordinate leaders. There'd always be someone that would stand up and take his place. So they had to shift their tactic, and they started shooting our medics. But which is sad, but it just shows the strength of our leadership. And, and you know, th there, there's a similar uh, truth in, in the church. That uh, you know, pastors, missionaries, uh, ministers, the church doesn't hinge on us. If, if, if we get taken out, someone, God will raise up another to take our place. The church doesn't hinge on one person. And sometimes, you know, we have an overinflated view of pastors, missionaries, and theologians that we, we, we think too highly of them. But they're just a man that's received a, a gifting and an office. And it's, it's for a time. It's for a time. I'm here for a time. I don't know how long that time is, but when my time is up, there will be another man that comes along. It's the same is true for all churches. God always has another man in the pipeline, ready, preparing him. And we see this in, in, in this, this farewell. All these men that, that God is raising up and is using to spread his kingdom. And so we have seen in these final verses that Paul communicates first to the Colossians that he is not alone. Second, that you Colossians are not alone. Third, that they, all of the ministers and churches, are not alone. And finally, and comprehensively, he communicates to them that we are not alone. 
We are not alone. The, the whole church, the church universal, we are not alone. The kingdom of God is advancing. It's always advancing. So even if one church closes down or one church stumbles or splits, there's other churches being planted. If uh, missionaries are imprisoned and persecuted and killed, others are being raised up. The kingdom of God is always advancing. It's always growing. Satan cannot hinder it. The, the world cannot hinder it. The world cannot stop it. They can burn Bibles and books all they want. We will print more. We will never stop. God will advance his kingdom. Jesus' uh, promise. He said to Peter, you are Peter upon this rock, this testimony that he is a Christ. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God is advancing and we are not alone. Paul kind of... He, all throughout his epistles, he explains this. And, and oftentimes he explains it in the context of our, our spiritual giftings, our service in the church, that we are one body, that we are one temple, that though we all fail and though we sin and though we have weaknesses, we also have giftings, we also have strengths, we also have abilities and something to contribute to the body as a whole. And, and he explains this in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's one. We're united into one body by one spirit. But he goes on, he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we see this, these, these giftings um, in, in, in all these men at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians. We, we see it all throughout the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts. You know, the, the, the subtitle to the, the book of Acts, the letter to Acts, uh, is the Acts of the Apostles. But it's really, and many pastors and theologians have said this, it really could be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Really, the main character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit and his work through all these people, through all these men, to plant churches. Paul goes on in Ephesians chapter 4, and, and many churches have this, uh, this verse on their wall. Ephesians 4.11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's, the, in a sense, the, the strategy of, of Christ and him building his church that he gives to the church uh, gifted men from within the church, uh, uh, first starting with the apostles and the prophets who are no longer, they, they do not know they, they, they do not exist anymore. 
But the church was founded upon that foundation of Christ and then the apostles and the prophets. And then now it's being built up by evangelists, by shepherds, by teachers. And and then by the rest of just the, 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 the common uh, church member who's been given spiritual gifts. And, and too often uh, we, we don't look at um, our gift or our gifts as, as something important. Some of us may, may think, well, I'm not that gifted. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a speaker. But yeah, but maybe you have the gift of encouragement. Maybe you have the gift of faith. Maybe you have the, the, the gift of administration. Maybe you have a, a gift of wisdom. There, there's all sorts of uh, various gifts, and we, we have a, a mix of gifts, each one of us. But none of us, if you are in Christ, you are, are, are not left without a gift. You have a spiritual gift. And sometimes just by you coming here, just by you showing up, you're a gift to the church. You're an encouragement to the church. Just by your demeanor, your attitude, uh, the fact that you, you, you give or you um, smile or you encourage or you, you call somebody, that is a spiritual gift that's being used for the edification of the body. That's why it's important that we gather and we're um, connected to one another. And I know that we all have uh, situations in life, and, and especially as... As we age, um, we, we have our bodies wear down and we get health issues and some of us have relationship issues or job issues and we can't always make it. But if you can make it, you need to make it because the body needs you. The body needs you as a whole. We're being built up. We build each other up just by our presence. That's how God is building his kingdom and he gives the church men and women with giftings to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's how we, we see here that the kingdom of God is advancing. It's advancing. This is, and this is what we're, we're called to. This is a mission of the church. We, we aren't called just to sit, but we are called to advance. We are called to grow. We are called to proclaim. We are called to give and to serve and to bless the world to be uh, that city set on a hill that Jesus said in on the Sermon on, uh, on the Mount that we are called to be light in the midst of darkness. This is why he, he says to Peter, uh, you know, uh, you are Peter upon this rock, talking about the testimony. Uh, Peter said, uh, he answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And within that phrase was the testimony, was the gospel, it was um, that the church is being built upon. But then further, at the end of the gospels, we get the mission of the church, that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples. And then even in the beginning of the book of Acts, right before Jesus left this world, right before he ascended into heaven, all this, these wonderful things that happened and miracles and everything surrounding the ministry of Jesus Christ and, and his death, burial, and resurrection and, and everything, his, uh, uh, his appearance. And so right before he leaves, they're on the Mount of Olives and, and his disciples, they come together and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You know, talking about all the Old Testament promises. 
And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then he went up into heaven. And that that was his final instructions, that you are to be my witnesses. And you are to do it, you are to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what, in a sense, what we see happening as Paul gives us these farewell greetings, talking about this is happening. All these men, they are being witnesses. These churches being planted, they are being witnesses. We see the power of the Holy Spirit working through them and planting these, these churches. That the kingdom of God is advancing And God is working in and through us. The Holy Spirit resides within us. He's empowering us to live lives of holiness, to proclaim his gospel. We we see people being converted. We see churches being planted. God is working in and through us. And it's, it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you know, on... The, the the night of the Last Supper, in John chapter 15 and, and 16. He, he, he tells them about um, the Helper, about Him going away and, and, and the Helper coming. It says in John 16, 7, He says, I tell you the truth is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's, in a sense, the gospel. He, he, the, the helper comes to us. We're born again by the Spirit. And only by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again, to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit comes in, he, he takes out that heart of stone that hates God and gives us a heart of flesh that, that longs to serve God and, and worship God and honor God that, that Jesus describes in John chapter 3. And, and as the, the Spirit comes in, he regenerates us and he washes us and he illumines our mind and helps us to see. But then he is also called the Helper. Because he helps us to to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. He helps us to fight sin. He helps us to proclaim the gospel. And and this is why uh, Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away so that the helper will come. That Jesus' earthly ministry is over. And now, ever since the time of Pentecost, we're in the earthly ministry of the Holy Spirit. Too often in our Age and in Christianity, the the Holy Spirit is just, you know, sad to say he's misunderstood. Um, Things about him are misapplied. He's blasphemed by uh, some some of the those uh, people in in, uh, the the Pentecostal churches and Charismatic churches, especially the the um, extreme ones. But he's here to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it starts with us. And then as we proclaim the gospel and he gives us the power and the boldness and the wisdom to do that, he is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's helping us to live holy lives. He's working in and through us. The Holy Spirit is God. He he has all the attributes of God. And we see his work um, 
in the pages of Scripture, in the book of Acts, we see his work here. As Paul lists all the things that are happening uh, around the Greco-Roman world and, and through Epaphras and, and through the church at Colossae and, and Laodicea and Herapolis. He wants them to know that we are not alone. That the kingdom, kingdom of God is advancing and, and it's because of the Holy Spirit who is working in and through us and that finally that God is with us. God is with us. You know, that, that term that we... Um, we love a, a term of, of Jesus concerning Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We first see it in Isaiah, that God came with us. He walked amongst us. He dwelt with us. But then he went away. But then as he promised, and as even in, uh, was promised in the, in the New Covenant in Jeremiah uh, uh, chapter uh, uh, 33, that um, God will indwell us. He will come within us. Uh, um, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus about in John chapter 3 that God is within us if we are born again. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. You know, we, we're familiar with this great commission. Matthew 28, and Jesus gives us this mission. The church is not just a, a club. We're not just a social organization. Though we often do the same things. We can be tempted to think that that's all church is about. The, the fellowship and the love and, you know, potlucks and getting together, which are important. They're, they're, they're not trivial. We, we fellowship, we encourage one another in those contexts. But we have a mission. We have a mission and a purpose, and this is it. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see this being worked out here at the end of the, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. That the Great Commission is being worked out. It's being obeyed. The church is advancing. The kingdom of God is advancing. And we are not alone. The Holy Spirit is with us. Jesus is with us. Wherever he sends us, he goes with us. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Several times throughout the Old Testament. And here in the Great Commission, and we see that, he, he has not left us. Paul ends his letter, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. We, we see this, uh, the, the fellowship of the gospel of grace. And all these men, all these churches, and he tells the Colossians, grace be with you. God has shown you grace. I ask for more grace. You extend this grace to others. And that is our call, to extend this gospel of grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, please remind us and help us to reflect on the fact that those of us who are in you, who have been born again, were once your enemies. 
We were once against you. We once lived for self. We once worshipped self. We once did everything for ourselves. And yet you, by your grace, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You saved us by grace. It is by grace that we are saved not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet, Lord, you know that there are people here, whether young or old, only you know the true condition of their heart, but not only statistically speaking, but some we know that don't know you savingly. Lord, we pray that you would extend your grace to them today, that they may come to know you and experience this grace and be born again by your Spirit, that they may repent of their sins and turn from their sins and trust in you fully to rest completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not their own works, not because they one, one day raised a hand or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or said that they accepted Jesus into their hearts, which is nowhere found in Scripture, but because of your grace. We pray you would extend your grace to lost sinners and help us to proclaim this grace and call lost sinners to come to you, to seek your grace, to seek you while you may be found, to call upon you while you are near. For those of us who are saved, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Be with us throughout the rest of the day and this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.